spoke from Luke, and we now are in Advent. But this is our final message. So people have said thank you for helping shift our focus to, to Advent. From the Latin word Adventus, meaning coming. There was the first coming that we look back to, the first coming of Jesus, and the second coming, Jesus said, I'll be back. That's the second coming, and he's coming back again. So there's a few things we do to help fix our focus on Jesus. We have an Advent candle wreath, and it's symbolic of a few. It's not a big thing, but it's symbolic. Candles are symbolic of light in a dark world. There's different colors. The the first purple candle we lit in week one was the candle of prophecy. The second purple was the the candle of preparation. The third candle was the pink one, the candle of joy. The angels sang of great joy. And the fourth purple is the candle of love. Tomorrow night, we will light the one in the middle. That's the candle of Christ, the white one. The wreath is a little bit symbolic. The wreath is a circle. So, So you have symbolism. There's no beginning and there's no end to the wreath. That's symbolic of of whom? Jesus. The eternality of the Lord Jesus Christ. So maybe you grew up in a home that had an Advent calendar and you did some Advent things. That's all we want to do. It's the four weeks from Thanksgiving to Christmas, which is symbolic of the 400 years between the Old and the New Testament. Again, symbolic. And the whole purpose of Advent for us as a church Because even us in the church, you get so focused on doing church stuff, you can forget Jesus. It's easy to leave him out. There's so much stuff going on. So we shift our focus to Advent. And this is our final message. And here's what we did. We did it apologetically. Instead of the reason for the season, which you hear everywhere, which is good, right? We should. What's the reason for the season? We flipped it. We have a season full of reason. Your faith is not a blind leap. You have the only religious worldview that is rooted in historical events. So that's what we have been preaching for three weeks. This is our fourth. The first one was the reason of when. Then we saw the reason of who. And we saw the reason of... of, 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 of and now this week, the reason of why. We're looking at why did Jesus come... We saw at the beginning, in the first week, in the fullness of time. The time was pregnant. It was the perfect time for God to send his son. So we looked at the reason of of when. Then the reason of who. Then last week, remember, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. That was how this took place. But now we have the fourth message, why. And, And many, after the first service, we didn't have a Saturday, but the first service said, ooh, I didn't think of that. It's easy to miss the reason of why. And you're going to see this morning. And it's powerful, and it changes everything about your relationship with Jesus when you, when you see it. So two passages. They're very, very brief passages. One is Jeremiah 31.3. You can open to Jeremiah. Then you can put your finger in your Bible, if you'd like, to John 3.16. You can also just look on the screens. So we have everything on the screens for you that's important, which is, just makes it easy to follow along. And then it ensures that you'll never see me on the screen, because that would be a horrible thing. Some people do that. They have them say, oh, you don't want it tough enough here. But that you don't want. So we use the screens for the scriptures, okay? That's what's there. So we have Jeremiah 31.3. Are you there? Are you ready? And then John 3.16, the reason of why. Hear now the word of God. Jeremiah 31.3, the Lord appeared to us in the past, saying, 
I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. Now moving to John 3.16. Remember, these two fit together. And this one here, arguably the most recognizable of all verses. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And I'm going to show you how we're going to shift this verse in a moment. I'll show you one of the things I learned from my mentor. That whoever believes in him, whoever, shall not perish but have eternal life. Those are the two pillars of the reason this week that we're going to look at why Jesus came. Let's pray. Father, we add that you would add your blessing to your word this day. Nobody came here this morning. Nobody came here interested in listening to the imagination of a man. I have nothing to tell them. You have everything to say. Speak now through this broken vessel and speak only your words from this pulpit. Make it a word of salvation for the unsaved, a word of comfort for those in storm winds, and a word of rest for the tired, weary, and heavy laden. All things to all people that some might be saved. Father, we ask that this day we would have a fresh encounter with the living God. That we would be changed when we leave, more conformed to the image of Christ than when we walked in. That is why we are here. Meet us in our deepest place of need. But not as we prescribe those needs, but rather as you prescribe those needs, for you know what we need, when we need it. So come, now fount of every blessing. Unclutter our minds, unburden our hearts that we might see Jesus in him only. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. Okay, very, very simple today, very simple message. And then tomorrow night, just so you know, we're out of Advent, and it'll be a very special Christmas Eve message, Christmas special message, the, the Christ of Christmas we'll look at tomorrow. But here, under the reason of why, there's three things, and the last one is personal. Remember, remember let, me, let me remind you, three things you're supposed to hear in every sermon, three things. What does the text say? What does the text mean? And what does the text require of me? Oh, pastor, you mean it requires something of me? Yes, it does. Yes, you're not supposed to come to the scriptures and read it and walk away and go, oh, that's great. That's a good thing. Oh, that ministered to my heart. It does. It does all of those things. The word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Yes, but it demands a response from those who are engaged with it. It is living. It is active. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. So we must respond to the word of God. So that's part of the sermon, and that comes at the end, the practical application. Where does this fit? I remember Dr. Bob Raymond in seminary continually saying this to us as students. Tell them what they are supposed to do when you get to the end. Don't just leave it hanging. We are to respond to the word of God. So what does the text say? What does it mean? And what does it require of us? Okay? That's what we're going to look at. Under these three headings... Under the reason of why, what the reason was not. Uh, we have to be clear what it was not. Then, number two, what it was. And then here we go. This is where we go to meddling. Was it to you? It really doesn't matter, does it? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. 
what difference does that make if it isn't unto you? It really serves no purpose. So the question always must be asked, is it to me? And you say, well, yes, I've been saved. No, 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 no. This, again, again, Dr. Kennedy would say this, God saved you then as he's saving you now. What does that mean? You're only saved once. You're justified once in the eyes of God, but God is continually saving you from yourself. Not only daily, but moment by moment, God is saving you from you. So how do we respond to this word? In the power of the word of God. Not in our strength. In the power that is in the word. The power of the gospel. Unto salvation. But remember, there's always two parts of salvation. Eternal and everyday. Everyday life. Okay? Let's take a look. We are going to launch out into deep water and let our, let our nets down for a catch. Number one, what it was not, and I know some of you are going to kind of recoil, <laughs> the reason of why Jesus came was not sin. Okay? You go, oh, pastor, I thought Jesus came. For, well, let's give me a moment. Go to Genesis 3, 6 with me. Ready? And you'll see it on the screen as well. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. When you look at that passage, notice three things because this will give you the formula for sin. Not just for Adam and Eve. It gives you our formula for sin. And what is the formula? It's, it's the formula that, that all of us have to deal with on a daily basis. It's what Eve went through. She saw, she took, and she ate. That's for every single sin. Whether it's the sin of anxiety, the sin of impatience, the sin of man-centered anger, the sin of lust. It doesn't matter what the sin is. We saw, we took, and we ate. That's the formula for it. So we know that this is the, the breakdown of, of mankind. In Genesis chapter 2, they are given the promise that everything is yours. One thing you must not touch. If you eat from this tree, on that day you will surely die. So there is sin. But this is not the reason of why Jesus came. Let me show you. This is the reason of what for. Take a look. The reason of what for. Matthew 1.21. She will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. That is the what for in the coming of Christ. The first Adventist. This is what he came for. He came to defeat sin and Satan and death. But this is not the reason why. Why? Because sin was already in the world. Ready? We're going to go a little further out into a little deeper water. 
In Isaiah and in Ezekiel, you will see a fall that is symbolically described referring. Now, there's always these two horizons, specifically to the kings of Babylon and Tyre. But also, you will see them referring to the spiritual powers of evil and darkness behind the kings. You'll see it from from two perspectives. So you'll see in its context in which it was written, and then you'll see it from a deeper perspective. What's behind this message? Remember, it is God who raises kings up and takes them down. It is God who is sovereign over all things. These kings don't just come into power. They are puppets on God's strings that he is using as instruments of salvation and sanctification. He used the evil nations to judge his people. So God is in control of all things. Let's take a look at these two passages. Isaiah 14, 12 to 14. This will be symbolic of the fall of Lucifer from heaven. Take a look. What speaks of the king of Babylon. This is speaking of Nebuchadnezzar. This is clear. But it points symbolically and indirectly to Lucifer. Take a look. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star. Son of the dawn, you have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. Don't miss the personal pronouns that now are going to come at us one after the other because this is the problem with sin. Watch this. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain I will ascend above the tops of the clouds I will make myself like the most high what's the problem in that passage okay back in 2002 when we showed up at Coral Ridge we we were at Coral Ridge we're serving as lay leaders I gave a talk in the youth group and the guy who was over the youth group the the elder this this his, guy, his name was Joe Miller. Any, any of you heard of him? Oh, what a problem he was back then. Well, he's still a... Oh, no, he's out of town. Oh, he's watching by the... No, he's what? Hi, Joe. Sorry. Sorry. No, he's a good man. He's a good man. He says, he says I, I see you're new here. It's just a wonderful thing. I'd love to take you to lunch. I go home. I tell Kim. I says, man, this guy, he's, he's like one of the leaders in the church. Take me to lunch. This is exciting. We're going to Houston's on the water. We're going to lunch. We sit down at the table. He tells me some things. And he says, I think God intends to use you in a mighty way. But there's a problem. I said, okay, what's that? He says, too much I. What? There's too much I. Every other word in your talk, I, 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 I. If you don't get out of the way, God can't use you. I wanted to grab him and throw him in the water in the intercoastal behind Houston's. I did. Like, who is this guy? So for the next year, I hid from him. <laughs> who is this guy? What do you mean too much I? What do you know? Sixteen years later, we're together in the same church. He's one of my mentors. He's an elder here. And he was right. There's still too much I. Ask him. Oh, you've got to say amen. Oh, Miss Norma, we need to talk. i got to pray more for you, Norma. Amen. Oh, 
But he's right. There's too much I. I, 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 always getting in the way. That's the problem. We have to get out. What did John the Baptist say? He must increase. And I got to get out of the way. This is always the problem. It's I. What, what? Pogo said, I have met the enemy. And it is I. We're our own worst enemy. We in the Lord's prayer say, lead me not into temptation. Who here needs any help? I'm doing fine all by myself. It's I that's the problem. Same thing with the chief angel. He made it all about him. Then to Ezekiel. Take a look. This is comparing the king of Tyre to Satan. Take a look. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for I so ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. Pause, pause. From the day you were created. Say created. There are people all over the world praying to angels. I don't understand that. Sometimes you drive down the road, got little angels hanging from the rearview mirror. You go to people's houses, angels in the bathroom, angels in the ground, angels out in the garden, angels. Don't pray to angels. They're created beings. And we're not to be praying to angels. They're created just like we're created. God created them for a specific purpose. Some of them fell. And they got the boot, boom, right out of heaven. But don't pray to angels. When you get to the other side, you're not going to get wings. No, people tell me, I can't wait to get my wings. I don't want that. I'm not looking for wings. I'm looking for something that's a whole lot better than this mess. Because I've been promised a new body. And I can't wait. But it's not coming with wings. Angels are created. For the purpose of your redemption. Ooh, don't miss this. You were blameless in all of your ways. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. They sinned. They turned from God. Sin was here before Adam and Eve. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty. I, 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 on account of the beauty. And you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. That's why we have to start the story farther back. People ask, what's going on in the garden? What's this snake all about? Well, we have to know the whole story. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before the kings. And then here, remember in Luke, we just preached this. Jesus replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning, Luke 10, 18, from heaven. Now, the imagery reappears and is really fully developed. If you go to Revelations and you go to Revelation chapter 9, you'll see this imagery fully developed. It's the great dragon. And what's the great dragon that's hurled down? It's the ancient serpent called Satan. And it's fully developed in Revelation. But here, remember, there's two parts of this thing. And in Luke, we looked at it differently than we'll look today. Today, we're looking at it from the, from the perspective that Satan was thrown out of heaven. Okay, we have that. But in Luke, we looked at it from a different perspective. When Jesus said, I saw Satan fall, I saw Satan fall, I saw Satan fall, what was he seeing? He was seeing you come to life. 
He sent the disciples out to preach the gospel, and every time somebody got saved, what did Jesus say? I saw Satan fall. I saw every time you share the gospel and somebody gets saved by grace through faith, Satan falls. Satan falls. Satan falls. That's the picture that we need to see. Satan is falling moment by moment as people get saved. Jesus made that clear, but there was a real fall from heaven. So we have to see both together. Okay? We have that. So now I'm going to show you in the clearest way that Jesus didn't come for angels. And he didn't. And the reason why wasn't sin. There's something deeper for you to see today. You ready? The writer of Hebrews 2, 5 to 8. Here's the echo of Psalm 8. This is Psalm 8's echo. Watch. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified. Now we're in Psalm 8, I believe, 4 through 6. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. Pause, pause, don't miss this. Sometimes we have to pause. Do you see under his feet? In the ancient world, listen to me, don't miss this. Because this is, see, when you look at it from this perspective, it sees you how everything fits together. I tell you, this is one word from one God to one world. This is the Old and the New Testament. All fits together beautifully well. Okay, in the ancient world, under the feet, you know what that was a term for? That was dominion. Where do we see dominion in the beginning of the scriptures? In the cultural what? Mandate. Remember the cultural mandate in Genesis 1? We are to have what? Dominion. Adam and Eve were to have dominion. You now as You now as ambassadors of Jesus, having been raised from death to life, what are you to have right now in the culture? Say the word dominion. Dominion. We're not to be, we're we're not the tail. We're not, we we don't let culture wag us. We're the head. But we're to do it with love and kindness and compassion and gentleness and patience. But, But, so under his feet, cultural mandate. That was one of Dr. Kennedy's great, great visionary focuses, the cultural mandate. So that's here. But it's not to angels. Now watch, we're going to support it even more. Don't miss this. In putting everything under him, that's the Lord Jesus, and then all those who are his, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at the present, we do not see everything subject to him. Remember, we're in that already not yet phase. What does that mean? You are all... (laughs) You're already perfected in the eyes of God because you're clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father sees you as he sees his son. Do you see yourself as he sees the son? You better not. <laughs> no, because you see yourself for what you really are, right? That's, 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 that's Calvin's mirror. The mirror shows us who we are. Shows us how far short we fall in being able to fulfill the law of God. But yet in the eyes of God the Father, when God said this to his son, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Do you know that he says that over you every day? Do you know that? Well, how is that even possible with some of the stuff I do? He doesn't. He... That's the whole point of the gospel. He's not treating you as a sinner anymore. He's treating you as a son, as a daughter, as a child. He judged his son in your place. He's not judging you anymore. It is finished, Jesus said. You see your sin. He doesn't. You are perfected in his eyes. You you, you are the apple of his eye. 
And until you see yourself that way, you'll never defeat the sin that abides in your heart. You can't beat it. You can't just beat it in your own strength. I'm just going I'm, I'm to I'm get more discipline. It doesn't work that way. You have to know it's already been beat. You have to know it's already been nailed to the cross. You have to know it's already been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. And you have to know that you already have victory. And then you begin to see yourself differently. You see yourself as a child of the Most High God. That's how God sees you. So it, we're getting to the deeper point of the message, okay? Hebrews 2 now, 16. We're going to what? We're, we're going to continue this theme that it wasn't because of sin. Because sin was here. Angels were already here. For surely, this is Hebrews 2, 16 to 18. This is resuming the contrast between men and angels. It is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. Which descendants of Abraham's? The spiritual seed of Abraham. Yes? Not the physical descendants. Okay, it's the spiritual seed. Now make no mistake, Paul clearly suggests something in the book of Romans that there's something coming for Israel. But let's make this perfectly clear. Whatever that something is is coming. And, and I just had a wonderful class at, at Knox in this. But whatever that something is that's coming in Israel, and Paul is clear in that matter, it is still only coming by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever that is. And none of us know what that is. But God is faithful to his promises. And when you read that all Israel will be saved, we, we see that promise. But make no mistake... There's no second way in. There's no special dispensation. We are saved by grace through faith. When Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, period. That's what he meant. So it's the spiritual seed of Abraham. And that seed brings us all the way back to where? Genesis 3.15, where the seed of the woman, women, do you have seed? Say no. No. So where did the seed come from? Above, who was the seed? Jesus. The seed. The line through what? The promise in the eternal covenant, the blood of the eternal covenant, the promise before there was anything in creation, no time, no space, no matter. The promise was made. Now we have the promise in Genesis 3.15, and then we have the line of Abraham and David and all the way through Jesus, and now what? You, the spiritual seed. You are a promised child of God. See it? For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way. He wasn't made like an angel. He was made like you. He was made like you. In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement. <sighs> I often, I, I, I'm always cautious of, of bringing in sometimes bigger words that sometimes it's just... But in atonement, we want to make clear what that means. What does atonement mean? There's another bigger word that sometimes gets added in, the word propitiation. And many of you know what that means, but you're here for the first time. Oh, what does that mean? What is this? It's simple. God was angry at sin in the sinner. He was mad. He said, when you do this, you're going to die. But I'm sending my son to save you. But that anger has to be dealt with. That's atonement. That's propitiation. Jesus bore the wrath of God. Jesus drank God's wrath so that we would not have to. 
that's what that means. Doesn't that change it when you just atonement? You can read right by atonement. No, he took God's anger away. God's not angry with you. Now, some people say to me, oh, pastor, then that means I can do whatever I want. No, 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 no. You go do whatever you want. You're going to pay for it. God won't be angry with you, but he'll discipline you. What father and mother in here won't discipline their children when they're disobedient? Which ones? Any? No, of course not. If you love your child, you discipline them. You guide them in the way that they should go. So there's consequences to behavior. But God will... Judgment is over. Powerful. So, because of him suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What does that mean? You are never, ever tempted beyond that which you can withstand. And yet we fall, and we fall, and we fall. But there's hope in that. God has given us hope to be able to overcome the temptations. Temptation is not sin. We're tempted all the time. Jesus was tempted. It's only when we give in to temptation. So he's giving us what we need to overcome that. So if the reason of why is not sin, and you can see it's not sin. Sin was here. Sin was already here. You understand everybody with me? The reason of why was not sin. If it wasn't sin, what was it? Number two, L, O, V, E. We could do the benediction right now. I could send you home. You're going, oh, good. Why don't you do that? I get home early. No, stop. Doesn't that change everything? The reason why Jesus came wasn't sin. That was the what for. He came, he came to conquer sin, Satan, and death. But the reason why was love. For God so loved you. I remember the first time my mentor, Dr. Kovach, said this to me. Change the word. You ever change a word? No, sacred scripture. We don't change the word. No, no, no. Change that in John 3.16. For God so loved Tommy. Ooh. Well, that does change things. Put your name in there. For God so loved you. If you leave it out there in the world, it's just, it's, it's, too, it's, it's too, too, no. For God loved you. And you, and you, and you, and he died for you. With your name on his heart, Tommy. Your name on his heart. Pictured you on his heart. My God, my God, why? Why? Because of you, and you, and you, and me, and you on his heart. That's why. Love, sin was already here. It's love. The whole point of it is love. Back to the two passages, and, and just to read them one more time. Jeremiah 31, notice what it says. The Lord appeared to us in the past, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. This is the character of the covenant. You know the covenant that God gave to Abraham? It was, it, 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 what was the sign of the covenant? Circumcision. This is the covenant to Abraham that God gave. This is an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. This was a covenant that was made in the eternal council of the triune God before there was ever time, matter, or space. God ordained all of this 
before there was any of this. That's love. People say, well, if God knew this whole thing was going to get so messed up, why'd he do it? Love. He wanted a relationship with you. He wanted you to be with him. Oh, then God needed us to be. No, no, God was already in a perfect relationship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, perfect love, perfect relationship, perfect community, no need. So if there wasn't a need, what was it? A desire. God desired so deeply to have you in relationship with him. He created all of this knowing that we were going to mess the whole thing up. And knowing that he'd have to get his, send his son to die to get us back with him. That's the whole point of understanding Christmas. And then Easter. For God so loved me. Put your name in there. Put your name in there. For God so loved that he gave his one and only son Question, why did God not come after the angels? Now, scholars have debated this for centuries, and we don't know for sure. But the best that I've been able to come up with from scholarship and commentaries, these are the best answers I have. Because people, well, why didn't God come after angels? We, we don't know. But here's the best we have. There was no excuse for angels. There was no temptation. There was no temptation they had more light. They had greater knowledge of God than Adam and Eve. They were in his, his presence day and night, moment by moment. So their guilt was far greater than Adam and Eve's. There was no reason for them to turn from God. None. And they did. So Scripture says a love that would make you a spouse of the Son of God and the bride of the bridegroom, you are advanced above angels. For God so loved you. That is why everything works to your salvation. Did you know that? Everything works to your salvation. Every obstacle, every difficulty, every heartbreak... Every loss. Romans 8.28 And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Just know what it doesn't say. Okay? Because we, we, could, we could be like the Stoics and say that, well, it's God's will, it's God's will, everything is good. Everything is not good. It is not good that our loved ones die. For some this year, this Christmas, you'll have an empty chair for the first time. And your heart is broken. That's not good. It doesn't say that's good. But God says he will take everything and it will work for your good. Because everything he is working to your salvation. Was it good that Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery? 
Of course not. It was wicked and evil. First, they threw him in a well to kill him. Then they changed their minds and dragged him out and sold him into slavery so he was as good as dead. Then Joseph is down there and things are kind of going well after that bit of slavery. He's serving well. And then Potiphar's wife accuses him of something he doesn't do. He goes back into jail. Later he comes back out. He becomes second in command. There's a famine. He saves the nation and he saves his people. His brothers come. Fearful. When they finally realize who it is and what does Joseph say. Don't miss this. This lets you know that everything isn't good. What you meant for evil, it was an evil, wicked thing what you did, boys. What you did to me was wrong. It was evil. And you're accountable for that. But what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Because God is superintending everything. And everything is working to the good of your salvation. Is it good when <laughs> you get the doctor's report that you're in stage four and you've got a few weeks left? That's good. It's good when kids bust into schoolrooms and shoot their class. That's good. It's horrible. It is a result of sin and brokenness in this world and everything is utterly broken. But God says, even in this brokenness, I'm taking all of it and I'm using it for your good. That's love. That's a love that will not be denied. Final. Was it for you? Now it's personal. What difference does it make? Everything I just said. If you're a believer, you're comforted. That's great. It's good. Strengthened in your faith. But if you're not a believer and this wasn't said to you, what difference does it make? Was it to you? Was this love directed to you? Was he hanging on that cross with you on his heart? I say he was. I say for God so loved you that he took God's wrath for you. John 21, 15 to 17. Ready? When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, can you find a better fall in Scripture than, than Peter? He denies Jesus on the night he was betrayed three times to a servant girl. And a couple others in a courtyard. Three times he denies Jesus after walking three and a half years with him and telling him, Oh, I will never deny, I'll die with you. And Jesus says, Peter, for the rooster crows, three times you're going to deny me tonight. And I'm going to show you what love is. I'm going to show you. So now Jesus is on the beach. He's resurrected. And Peter's been fishing. No fish. Utterly broken. What he believed in died on a cross. He saw the empty tomb, but he still didn't believe. And now he comes to the shore, and Jesus is cooking breakfast. And the meal has been served. And Jesus looks in the eyes of Peter. 
Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Is it possible I'm not disqualified? Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. This is the second time. The third time he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, but now he's finally starting to get it. I denied him three times. Three times he's gonna show that I've been forgiven, that the slate has not only been wiped clean, the slate has been broken. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. There is no sin that you could have ever committed that has separated you that far from God that God cannot reach down into your heart and raise you from death to life. Jesus is asking you the question today, whether you've been walking with him for 50 years or whether you have never walked a moment with the Lord Jesus Christ, but today is a day of salvation, and Jesus is asking you right now, do you love me? Do you love me? What's, you can't just say I love you. You don't tell somebody in your life, husbands and wives and fathers and, son, and daughters and sons and, and, and mothers and sisters and brothers and friends. You don't just say, I love you. What is that? Love is an action word. It has to be lived out. I love you, I love you. That doesn't mean a thing. He demonstrates, God demonstrates his love in this, that yet while we were still sinners, he died. He didn't wait for you to get cleaned up. He didn't say, go get right. I want you to start reading the Bible, come to church, start giving your time, talent, and treasure. I want you to get right. Then I want you to sit down. Then we'll figure out that. He says, no, right now, as dirty as you are, as broken, as hurt, as afraid, as doubtful, he says, do you love me? An everlasting love that sought you, caught you, and bought you, has now brought you into a living, loving, intimate, personal relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. If that is not your truth, right now is a moment of salvation, and with outstretched arms and nail-scarred hands, Jesus has come. This is a moment of invitation, and you say, well, perhaps tomorrow. Tomorrow it may be too late. It is appointed unto men once to die, and then the judgment. You don't get a second chance at this. This is a moment of salvation. You've heard the gospel. The gospel is four letters. One word. L-O-V-E. For God so loved you. Will you surrender your life to Christ? Will you transfer your trust to Christ by grace through faith? Will you do that today? If you've been walking for years and years and years, will you renew your commitment? We all know how far short we fall. But if you've never prayed to receive Jesus right now, I want you to pray with me. Every believer in this room, pray with me. We know by way of the internet that there are many who have never surrendered control to Christ. This is a moment of salvation. Outstretched arms, nail-scarred hands, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Father, right now we know that there are some in here who have never surrendered control to the Lord Jesus Christ. Make this a moment of salvation. Give the gift of repentance and faith. And if you've never prayed, it's very simple. It's not a prayer that saves, but just simply these words you can pray right now, right in the quiet of your own heart. 
God Almighty, I've heard the truth today. I've heard the gospel. I understand it's all about love. The love of the Lord Jesus Christ who came because he loved me and he took my sin and he nailed it to a cross. And you've given me the gift of eternal life. I thank you, God, that I'm now yours, eternally secure in your love. Father, give the confident assurance to every single person in this room because they're all of us even at times we doubt. But give us the confident assurance that nothing will ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Let that truth set us all free this day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you all stand as we continue our worship?